0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod.
1: I sat down yesterday at the Institute of Politics with McKay Coppins, a national political writer for The Atlantic, and the author of a fascinating new biography called Romney, A Reckoning. It is a remarkably well-reported account of the life and evolution of Mitt Romney from one-time Republican presidential nominee to maverick and GOP apostate in the era of Trump. Here's that conversation. McKay, welcome back to the Institute of Politics. You were a, a stellar fellow here some years back, and it's good to see you again.
2: It's great to be back. I love it here, even when it's uh, snowy on on November first. Yeah, it's man, kind of absurd. It's but. a little early, I
1: think, but uh, <laughs> it is. It's a little frosty out there. It's also, by the way, and we'll get into this: the fifteenth anniversary of the 2012 election. Yes. Which you write quite a bit about in this book Romney: A Reckoning, and which was c- formative in your own career. Yes, but let's talk about that because folks who are habitual Axe Files uh, listeners can go back uh, and listen to your full story. But I, just for context, I want you to talk a little bit about it because mm-hmm. it's, there there are things that link you to Mitt Romney in a way that you wouldn't necessarily be true with someone else. You wrote about it, and mm. it, and it pivots around the fact that you're a Mormon from Massachusetts. Right. Uh, t- t- talk about
2: that. not a lot of us Mormons in Massachusetts, so yes. uh, it, we we were uh, come from a relatively small world. I didn't know Mitt Romney really growing up. I was you know um, very young. My parents have one story about meeting him at a blockbuster video in Belmont, Massachusetts, where he recommended the movie So I Marry an Axe Murderer," And uh, and that was not not what the first thing I would (laughs) have guessed. Well, it turns out he has a slightly irreverent sense of humor. But, you know, that that even though I didn't know him when I was assigned to cover his 2012 campaign, I, you know, I had kind of a window into his.
1: He was a bishop. Persona. He yeah, was the he had... lay bishop of of the of the church. <laughs> That's then. right.
2: And, and because of that, you know, my my family kind of knew of him because he was a you know a yeah volunteer leader of the church community in in that area. And as a reporter. I was the only Mormon on the campaign press bus, kind of following him around, and it, it was a, so. You
1: were like the Sherpa,
2: yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. Although it was weird, Mitt Romney's campaign in 2012, and you know this, was very skittish about talking about his religion. We're going to get into that, and because of that, they kind of kept me at arm's length. I never interviewed Mitt Romney that whole campaign, and I tried, uh, but they didn't want to give. Uh, you know, give me that access. I think because they were worried about what questions I would ask him, and would I write some you know Mormon centric story that would be politically inconvenient to them. So I wrote a lot of stories about his religion because I thought it was like a, a good way to understand him. But his campaign wasn't. You know, they didn't love those stories. That yeah, much.
1: yeah. Well, I want to get back to all of that, mm-hmm. but in, in, and and this story, by the way, for those who uh, are considering the book. Uh, is not. It's about the evolution of Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. It's also about the evolution of the Republican Party. Yes. But a central figure who hangs over the whole story is his dad, mm-hmm. uh, George Romney, who uh, we have an audience of many students here and some, a few non-students here. But George Romney was a significant figure in American political history in the 1960s. Uh, talk about him and mitt's experience of politics through uh his father back in the 1960s
2: yeah george romney was a liberal republican governor of michigan
1: and if anybody wants to know what a liberal republican looks (laughs) like they have some in the stuffed in the field museum (laughs) downtown so
2: it's 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 strange when I kind of dove into the archives and the, you know, the press coverage from back then. The The liberal wing of the Republican Party was fairly robust in the, in the 50s and 60s, right? Yeah,
1: I'm old enough to remember that. I grew up in New York City, Nelson Rockefeller, exactly. John Lindsay. Yes.
2: That, yeah. and, and so George Romney, as soon as he took office, kind of planted himself firmly in that wing of the party. In his first address, when he was sworn in as governor, he talked about how— the most important pressing uh, issue uh, facing Michigan was the civil rights crisis uh, for African-Americans in the, in the state. And he was a big civil rights uh, advocate. He marched with civil rights leaders and we
1: should parenthetically, we should point out. He also was like a business whiz.
2: Mm -hmm. He had been took over
1: American motors doesn't exist anymore
2: and turned it around huge success. Yes, that's right. He had, he had been a, uh, that that was kind of the chapter of his career that led to him having this career in politics. And it's funny because Mitt, as he was the youngest uh, youngest of Georgia's kids, and uh, as the caboose was able to kind of spend a lot of time with his dad, all the other kids moved out, g- grew up, and he sort of rode shotgun on his dad's political rise early on and really admired his dad. His dad was kind of rising in politics at a moment when Barry Goldwater and the conservative movement was taking over the Republican Party. So it put George in this difficult position where he had thought he was kind of carrying on this grand tradition of liberal republicanism that went back to, you know, Dwight Eisenhower and Abraham Lincoln even. And then all of a sudden he's looking around and realizing that his party is being taken over by what he considers kind of extremist forces. And there's a famous moment in George Romney's career where he traveled to the Republican Convention in San Francisco, yep, and refused to endorse Barry Goldwater uh, and, in fact, gave this kind of thundering speech denouncing the rise of conservative extremists in the party.
1: And was roundly booed.
2: Yes, he was not well-received at all. In fact, there's a famous line that Goldwater gives in his acceptance speech on the last night of the convention that a lot of people believe was basically Targeted at George Romney, where he says extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. And and at that moment, when when Barry Goldwater accepted the nomination, everybody stood and cheered right at the convention and Mitt, who was there as a teenage delegate, associate delegate or whatever, looked over and saw his dad quietly sitting and refusing to cheer. And it was it it made him really proud. But. As he pursued his own political career later in life, he kind of defined his own career in opposition to his father's, and all
1: yeah, like that. well, first of all, that's not unusual. Mm. If you when you study the children of prominent politicians, oftentimes they both revere their parent and then they but they approach politics. Differently in this case. That's interesting. Yeah, think about the Gores, for example. Yeah. <laughs> Al Gore Sr. was a populist firebrand out of uh, Tennessee, and and Al Gore Jr. kind of rose through the party as a as a technocrat. Yeah. But there's also the fact that George Romney ran for president, and he was a a hero of mine. In fact, when, uh, the fifth episode of the Axe Files. You're, I think, 555 or something. Seriously. I'm
2: honored to be yeah, uh, your, I your
1: saved 500th guest. I said, when I do my 555th <laughs> show, I want it to be with McKay Coppins. I'm saving it for him. But uh, back uh, in Romney was, I think, our fifth show. And one of the things I told him was his father was a political hero of mm. mine. And he was a political hero of mine because he stood up for civil rights when it was hard mm-hmm. within the Republican Party in the 60s but also you know he stood up against the war in vietnam yes and he came back and he did an interview he went to vietnam and he he said he had he felt that he and by extension others had been brainwashed by the generals and that his campaign kind of imploded Mm -hmm. and uh i asked romney what did you learn from watching your father i want to know what he said He essentially said, I learned to be cautious. Yes,
2: this is what he told me, too.
1: I learned to be cautious.
2: And you can see that in all of Mitt Romney's campaigns. Basically, into the last few years, so much of his political persona was defined by trying to not repeat the mistake his dad had made. Because in Mitt's view, and I think it was actually more complicated, Georgia's campaign was starting to struggle at that point because, like you mentioned, he had refused to condemn the race rioters in detroit while you know richard nixon was pursuing the southern strategy and exploiting white grievance and but that that moment thank in,
1: god we got we've gotten past that
2: yeah no we're we're now yeah. in the post-racist yeah. uh, society yeah. no but you know mitt what he saw was his dad's campaign, his march to the White House was derailed by a single poorly chosen word in an interview, brainwashing, right? Yes. And so Mitt's whole goal as a as a candidate, as a presidential aspirant was, I'm not going to say the wrong word. And, yeah. and you could see that he was so cautious and so careful and stuck to the talking points. But it's also why he would tend to have these kind of gaffes in his own campaign, I think, because we, we talked about this, but like. When you te- it's like when you say, "Don't think of an elephant, you know you you immediately think of an elephant. he he was just always saying, like telling himself, "Don't screw up, don't screw up, don't yeah. screw up. you and-
1: can't it's very hard to do in a presidential yes. race. I mean, you you can't bridle yourself that way. It comes at great cost. Mm-hmm. You know when George Romney said the thing he said about being brainwashed, Eugene McCarthy, who was running on the Democratic side challenging President Johnson over the war in Vietnam had kind of a droll and sarcastic sense of humor. And they said, Governor Romney says he was brainwashed. And uh, McCarthy said, I imagine it was only a light rinse. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, but anyway, but I will but, say just as an aside, mitt still gets so mad when you ask him about the brainwashing gap he he'll launch into this like rant that you've heard you know he's he's given a thousand times before about people knew what he meant and they deliberately misconstrued it and you know he'll recite political cartoons he remembers from that year like it it still bothers him to this day yeah
1: yeah you know uh, but he did, re- he did take that lesson mm-hmm. away. He, he, and he also took another lesson from his father, which was make a bunch of money before you get into politics, yep. which he did do mm-hmm. started Bain Capital, a private equity firm mm-hmm. in Massachusetts, which became famous when he moved into <laughs> politics. Yep. I meant I had something to do with I was going to say, yeah, did, you,
2: did you have anything to do with so, that? So, <laughs> uh,
1: but he ran for the Senate against Ted Kennedy in 1994, mm-hmm. uh, obviously an iconic name, and also a much better politician probably than Romney yes. appreciated going in. You cover that in this book. He, he lost, mm-hmm. thought he was done with politics, and service is a big part of the Mormon faith, mm-hmm. missions and so on. So he was service-oriented, but not necessarily politically oriented. He didn't really like... Even when he was a kid, he didn't really like the glad handing and the he, flesh pressing. And so He on.
2: saw this in himself pretty early on because his dad did love it, right? His dad loved working a he crowd. He was an
1: bullion character.
2: Right. And Mitt yeah. would go along with his dad to these, you know, events or rallies or whatever. But he he immediately could see he didn't get the same charge out of it that his dad did. And for a long time thought he would never go into politics. And it was really that that first campaign was kind of. He had at that point made hundreds of millions of dollars. And his wife was was the one Anne, who he listens to uh, on basically everything kind of said, well, we don't need any more money. So what are you going to make the rest of your life about? Right. And so that kind of sense of obligation of public service is what drove him into politics. But he wasn't an especially partisan guy. In fact, when running against Ted Kennedy he he thought that he had a chance to win because he had heard rumors that Kennedy had lost a step and you know wasn't wasn't the the politician that he once was and he he quickly realized he had been misled about that once he got on, on the debate, a debate stage. stage yes, yes. but I think that if I think there's a good chance that if, you know, the person, the incumbent there that to be beaten was a, a Republican, he could have run as a Democrat. He really didn't have a, a special. Well, this is interesting because GOP. he
1: did run again. Was it in the governor's race when he was contemplating how he would answer the question about the fact that he had contributed money to Republicans and Democrats that he's he said, I'll just tell the truth and say I, I give money to the candidate I think is best. and his consultants."
2: quashed that yeah he 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 said like you know when he was he he wanted to say well i just donate to whoever i think is going to be the best and then sometimes that's a democrat sometimes it's a republican and his republican advisors said no 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 you can't say that yeah so (laughs) so
1: but this is kind of a turn in the story because um he he did get elected governor of massachusetts and he did govern for the first couple of years in a very kind of bipartisan. We had to. Mm -hmm. He had a democratic legislature. But he was the author of a health care plan that really was, in many ways, a prototype or a template for what Barack Obama would Mm do nationally later. And then he started entertaining presidential ambitions. So in some ways, this book is sort of the education of Mr. Romney, Mm -hmm. because he was being asked more and more as the Republican Party drifted to the right to change his own approach to politics. Talk about that.
2: Yeah. So because he had been governing in Massachusetts as sort of this moderate technocrat, right, he had some big accomplishments. He he had helped dig the state out of a fiscal crisis Mm -hmm. The healthcare overhaul was, which, was by the
1: way, who, which he worked with Ted Kennedy on.
2: That's right. Yeah, Ted Kennedy actually stood at the with him at the signing, the bill signing, and said, "If Romney and Kennedy have uh, both endorsed a bill, you know that one of them hasn't read it." Um, <laughs> but, but no, I mean the reality is. He he told me and this is actually a really interesting kind of admission he made to me because he said, you know, at the time and certainly later when I was running for president, I had to defend my health care record. And I would always point to the fact that the insurance mandate, the personal mandate, which was kind of the centerpiece of what, what made made it work, what uh, had been proposed by the Heritage Foundation, yeah, right. the conservative think tank. But what he told me is I didn't know that at the time. And in fact, he said, I found out later that the Heritage Foundation had come up with this. And I was like, oh, perfect. We can use that as a way to kind of sell it to conservatives. But he said, the reality is, I don't look at problems and think, what's the conservative solution to the problem? I just try to figure out what the solution is and then figure out how to sell it afterward. The problem is, once he started running for president and became focused on winning Republican primaries, the consultants around him kind of told him, there are certain litmus tests that you have to pass and so you're going to need to change or pivot your position on a bunch of things you're going to have to learn to speak the language of the conservative movement he literally had advisors who told him you have to start reading the national review you have to start paying attention to what people say on fox news like he was not a consumer of conservative media before that and had to sort of become one so that he could learn how to relate to these these voters there's a really interesting moment, though, where he, he talked to me about how he didn't think at first that he would have to reinvent his persona meaningfully, right? He thought that he could make—he had this kind of quaint notion that he could make the pre, his presidential campaign about what he wanted to, to be about, right? Like, he was like, I'll make it about fiscal issues and jobs and education and those, you know, meaty policy things that, that I care about— but he would get on these stages in front of conservative primary voters, and it was almost like something alchemical happened up there on those stages where he was responding to the crowds and realizing that they didn't want to hear his 59-point plan for deficit reduction, right? Yeah. They, wanted, Shocking. <laughs> they wanted to hear about guns and killing terrorists and the evils of abortion. and And he found himself responding to the crowd and saying things that, in, in another setting, he wouldn't really have said and taking positions that in another setting he might not have totally taken. And he said, like, look, when you speak to the NRA, you change your tone. I admit it. I, I did that. And that was kind of he had supported
1: of, an assault weapons in, uh, ban as a governor in of Massachusetts. Massachusetts. That's right. Yeah,
2: and, and now and, you know, what is running in the Republican primaries, he has to kind of tell people that he's a hunter and he's a lifelong member of the NRA. And you know, again, it's... He acknowledges
1: it to you that he, he actually, he hunted rarely and didn't
2: and like hate it. it. Yeah, yeah. he, did not, he, did, he yeah. did not like it at all. Yeah. He has a journal entry because he gave me his journals for this book. Yeah,
1: let me ask you about that. This is a good <laughs> part to ask you about that. This is a remarkable book in part because he turned over his personal journals to mm-hmm. you along with emails and so on. I mean,
2: that's... Really, really unusual. Even more unusual because this was not an authorized biography in the sense that he had any editorial control over the book. My pitch to him at the beginning was, I want all the access that comes with an, edit, uh, an authorized biography, but I get the final say on what goes in the book. And I would and let him read it. Why did he agree to that? I, I honestly was shocked that he did. <laughs> yeah. um, in fact, I remember just a few weeks into the process of interviewing him, I was sitting in church and got a text from Mitt. And he said, Is that hey, what you do in church, McKay? Uh, my gosh. I, I told this story in one other interview, and so many people have given me a hard time about it. They're like, oh, so you're texting in church. I'm sorry. Sometimes I text in church. I know I shouldn't. Um, but I got a text from I'm him. I'm going to sit th-
1: back here in case a lightning bolt <laughs> <Yes>.
2: should <laughs> But he said, hey, check your email. I sent you something that might be interesting before our next interview. And I checked and it was just hundreds of pages of his journals. And then I later found out, I didn't know this at the time, that he hadn't even bothered to reread them before he gave them to me. And there were all kinds of very kind of candid, in some cases, withering assessments of his fellow Republicans and, and pretty revelatory stories. Why did he do it? I mean, by the time he was, he agreed to cooperate with me for this book. He had become so isolated in his own political party, and had you know knew that there was no chance of him becoming president. And I think was now thinking and, and, more about his legacy than about And maybe
1: re-election. had had decided though not formally that he probably wasn't going to run for reelection.
2: I think he, you know, I actually wonder about that. When we first started, the way he was talking to me was that he was still going to run for reelection, but. After January 6th, I think that he knew that he didn't really have a home in the GOP. And I, I think there was, you know, some people in his circle were trying to get him to run as an independent in Utah.
1: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? take a deep breath and turn on crooked media's what a day podcast in just 20 short minutes what a day hosted by me Juanita Tolliver and my co-hosts Trayvel Anderson Josie Duffy Rice and Priyanka Arabindi breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry and the best part is we do it every day so start your day off right with what a day available wherever you get your podcasts make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode
1: And now, back to the show. He lost in 2008, but the Republican Party had a kind of tradition of the guy who finished, the runner-up gets to move up. Yeah, That was when the party was a little more orderly than it is (laughs) today. (laughs) That's Um, one way
2: to put it. and,
1: And honestly, I can tell you, just working with Barack Obama at the time, you know, I told him very early that I thought Romney, would be the nominee in Mm. 2012 because we were in the midst of an economic crisis and he was a guy who could claim sort of broad knowledge of the economy. And we kind of
2: planned our whole campaign around that. So even before the the primaries, you were planning to run against Romney. Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. And of that field, because that, that was a pretty big Republican field. Did you think Romney was the strongest option for Republicans? Yeah. I mean, uh, Yes, be, uh, because he did have
1: this these economic credentials. Right. But I felt the same way about Romney that I did about John McCain, who we ran against in 2008. If Mitt Romney could have been the moderate governor of Massachusetts that he was, mm-hmm. he would have been a much more threatening mm-hmm. candidate. He was formidable, but he would have been more formidable. If John McCain could have been the John McCain that he was in two thousand. Right he would have been more formidable. But neither of them were free to uh, be who they wanted to be or who perhaps they were because the party had changed. And I just wanted to read something from your book here, which is a quote from Stuart Stevens, who was the uh, chief strategist for uh, Romney in 2012. He said, the base... Is Southern, evangelical, and populist, you're a Yankee, Mormon, and wealthy. We're gonna have to steal the nomination. Mm -hmm. And what that meant was you can't be who you are because who you are doesn't fit who the party is. And so the sacrifice that Romney had to make was authenticity. Yep. And authenticity is fundamental to winning presidential campaigns. So
2: that's interesting. That that's an interesting insight because I think a lot of people would say, like, he lost because he had to take more right-wing positions or because he stood on a stage with Donald Trump or whatever. He had to do all these things. But I think that's actually a more insightful characterization of what happened. It's that he couldn't be himself, and voters can tell, right? And and that's why he came across as so kind of clumsy and sort of plastic, right?
1: And he accounts for that in this mm-hmm. in his journals. I mean, you can see his discomfort— And perhaps that's why he wanted you to see his journals, because what he does is he lifts the curtain up on his own struggles with, you know, and he was competitive and he wanted to win. And basically, as you report, kind of made a series of almost unconsciously made a series of compromises that he thought were required. One of them was to accept the endorsement of a flamboyant reality TV star mm-hmm. uh, named Donald Trump. He really was uncomfortable with that.
2: Yeah. I mean, he when he was first approached by Spencer Zwick, his chief finance guy who kind of told him, hey, you have to let Donald Trump endorse you, Romney kind of laughed in his face and was like, there's no way I'm doing that. But the argument that was made to him was, look, if we don't accept his endorsement, Trump is gonna go endorse another primary opponent and it'll it could breathe life into their campaign and we just need to do this. Trump at that time was becoming a sort of right wing political celebrity because he was had basically become the chief birther, right? The the this yeah. Barack Obama conspiracy theory that he wasn't born in the United States. So Romney really resisted at first even taking a meeting with him. And when he did go to Trump Tower to do the requisite ring kissing, he he came up with this elaborate plot to not be seen entering Trump Tower. He had one of his campaign staffers stand outside with the press and pretend to be on the phone saying, hey, when are you guys getting here? And then they they slipped in through the back so that there was no footage of it. That's how embarrassed he was. Right. To to be doing but you, you wrote that he, he came to like Trump. Well, this is the interesting thing. Basically, what Romney convinced himself was, and and part of you know the story of this book is him taking stock of various moments where he rationalized things to to kind of that were in his self interest, right? So that he could live with them. And at the time, what he said was, you know, I didn't think of Donald Trump as a political figure; I thought of him as a dopey celebrity. And his argument was, Democrats have dopey celebrities who endorse them. Why can't I have the Celebrity Apprentice guy, right? And so. When he had made that kind of decision to just think of Trump as this weird, funny celebrity, he actually enjoyed talking to him. I found this one journal entry that when I presented it to Mitt, I think he was a little bit chagrined. But it was during the 2012 campaign, he had just gotten off the phone with Trump and he wrote in his journal, the, the, this guy, uh, the, no veneer, the real deal. It's so fun talking to him. Uh, he lifts my spirits, makes me laugh. You know, It was like kind of like rhapsodizing about how much he liked hanging out with Donald Trump. And I remember bringing it to him and being like, so what do you think about this? And he kind of was like, oh, geez, what? You know, <laughs>
1: that's but, probably when he w- reconsidered giving. You yeah, the- the-
2: <laughs> that was the moment, his but journals. there was something important there though, which <laughs> is that he kind of made the case to me that this is representative of this seductive quality that Trump has, right? Like interpersonally, when you're in a room with him and I've seen this too, because I, I profiled him, I went to Mar-a-Lago, he has this charisma and this like outrageous sense of humor. And if you are able to sort of set aside his very dangerous ideas and just take him as a person you know, like a lot of people get in the room with him and end up liking him. And it kind of explains how he was able to get his this whole Republican political party behind him. You know,
1: uh, there also were augurings that you write about at the end of the campaign. Mm -hmm. Let me just on this authenticity question before we get to this, the end of the campaign and what Trump did at the end of the campaign at the Republican convention, Clint Eastwood was in prime time, And everybody remembers that because it was so bizarre and crazy. (laughs) But, you know, he was he was like doing some sort of skit uh, conversation with Barack Obama or something.
2: He brought out like an empty chair and put it next to him. Apparently, a lot of it was improvised. It It, it had that feel, (laughs)
1: definitely had that feel, which is weird in the most important hour of a of a political convention. But what happened before was most more important to me in terms of there was a film and it was a film Mm -hmm. about Romney and it emphasized all the things that he was told he couldn't talk about in the campaign. So, you know, faith Mm -hmm. and his business, you know, because we had painted a portrait, I think not on, you know, not inaccurate about some of the things that his private equity firm did to rationalize companies and the impact it had on communities. But there was another side of the positive things that they'd never told. Mm-hmm. because someone told him, you can't talk about your business because that's a vulnerability. You can't talk about your faith because that's a vulnerability. And you can't talk about being governor because you did this health care plan. Yeah. So basically there was very little left that he could talk about. Mm-hmm. And this film covered some of those things and, had, and it presented a more complete portrait of him. And I think actually in that first debate in Denver, which was a disaster for us and uh, probably the best day of the campaign for Romney, he he seemed more himself mm-hmm. than he had at any time yep. in the campaign. But anyway, this is what Trump in the final, you said on October 27th, Trump uh, said on Fox News, I have something very, very big concerning the president of the United States, meaning Obama. It's very big, bigger than anybody would know. Didn't say what it was, no. but hinted menacingly that he had it and wait
2: can that, i ask you first did you pay any attention to that when trump was saying that like we were, were there was there any conversation in obama campaign headquarters like oh what do you think trump trump listen, was talking we, about th- we thought you know
1: we uh, made sport of trump at the white house correspondence dinner and, uh, you probably very
2: there notoriously in yes. 2000
1: <laughs> in 2011 and you know this was after the whole birther thing was mm-hmm. resolved because the president or should have been resolved because the president Released his long Mm. birth certificate because they would, you know, the Trump and those guys wouldn't accept his shorter birth certificate. That's right. Um, And so we had some fun with him at the White House correspondence dinner. And we thought that was like the end of it. Uh, Little did we know uh, what was simmering beneath. Yes. So I know I didn't follow what Trump, I didn't really give a damn what Donald Trump was (laughs) saying at that point. And at the end of the campaign, as Romney was prepared to concede, Trump starts tweeting, We can't let this happen. We should march on Washington and stop this travesty. Our nation is totally divided. Let's fight this hell and stop this great, disgusting injustice. This election is a total sham and a travesty. We are not a democracy.
2: Revolution. This is in 2012, on yeah. election night. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. it's funny. I I remember coming across those tweets while I was researching this chapter, and you almost have like a chill go down your spine, right? Because it's like that is, I mean, about as sharp a foreshadowing as you can find of what Trump would do eight years later. Yeah. But that, but again, this is what Romney was sort of up against, right? The, this Trump was, I think, understood something about certain elements of the base of the Republican Party that Mitt Romney didn't. Romney, I, I report that, you know, on election night, he had some advisors who didn't want him to concede that night because the margins were close in some states. And, you know, th- there was kind of an argument. Well, let's let's uh, fight a recount battle. Right. And we did win an electoral landslide. Well, and and Romney could see the writing on the wall and immediately shut it down and said, "I look, I don't want to look like a nut job. I'm going to go out there and concede and do the thing you're supposed to do. But. At the time, that was completely unremarkable. That's, of course, what you do, right? Now, that, that might he, be the last he, he, he time he that we have somebody yeah. do that for, you know, the-, the He didn't
1: realize how much how much currency there is in looking like a nut job. That,
2: well, that, I mean, literally, that, I think yeah. that's actually true. Yeah. Um, but, you know,
1: later, Romney spent much of 2015 and 16 trying to thwart Trump. Mm -hmm. And he was conspiring. He thought about running himself, didn't run, conspired with others. You have a full accounting of this, including emails and stuff. Mm -hmm. You're right. Romney couldn't uh, relate to the subversive thrill. Certain Republicans felt supporting a candidate who was vulgar and mean to all the right people who gleefully flouted decorum and decency, all but daring voters to turn on him. Were still there, Mm -hmm. except more so.
2: Well, because Trump isn't the only one now, right? A huge portion of Republican leaders now have learned to sort of mimic Trump's style. And I think it's actually what makes Trump kind of less exciting as a candidate to a lot of Republican voters is that his whole approach has been so widely adopted now in the party. But Yeah, but nobody does it like him. It's really true. It often comes across as I mean, that's part of the problem
1: for Ron DeSantis. He thought he could out-Trump Trump. Mm-hmm. And given a choice between an imitation and the real thing... <laughs> You know. Ro-
2: Romney actually told me at one point that we, when he, he was looking at photos of DeSantis on the campaign trail and he said the guy looks like he has he has a toothache. But <laughs> but it was funny, though, because then he kind of said, like, eh, kind of reminds me of myself on the campaign trail. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he's self-aware about that, you know?
1: Yeah, I think that DeSantis makes Romney on the trail look like Mr. Congeniality. <laughs> so but you also, um, you know, there's something else that strikes me. Which is, this is now me reading your book. Romney suspected that what he was now witnessing had always existed in the base of his party, that something visceral, elemental, and long dormant was now being awakened by an unabashed demagogue. Let's go back to 1964. Yeah. I mean, you weren't alive, mm. but you've studied this period. How much were the sort of antecedents of what we see today beginning to surface then?
2: Mm. I, it's a great point because the. That- coverage of that 1964 convention where Barry Goldwater was nominated, it sounds a lot like the contemporary coverage of Trump rallies, right? I mean, literally, there are descriptions of people, you know, shouting vulgar things and acting in outlandish ways that seem totally outside of the realm of normal politics. In one press account, even compared it to uh, the mood and tenor of a Nazi rally, uh, which probably went further than was reality. But it did I think Mitt saw in 1964 the kind of beginnings of that kind of the ugliest manifestations of right-wing populism that Donald Trump would exploit and, and champion 40, 50 years later.
1: When he said... I think this may have been, these forces
2: may have been dormant. I mean, do you think that was on his mind? He struggled. Well, it's funny because it was one of the questions I asked early on, and he would go back and forth on this, right? Because sometimes he leaned toward believing that Trump had activated something new in the Republican base. But then there were other times where he would kind of consider it and say, you know, maybe there is this kind of authoritarian element that was always dormant in the, in the, you know, just beneath the surface and that it just took somebody as brazen as Trump to bring it to the surface. And he would go back and forth on that. But I think by the end of our I mean, you should ask him, but I think by the end of our conversations, he was telling me that, you know, a very large portion of my party really doesn't believe in the Constitution. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's hard for him to believe that that's a totally new phenomenon that doesn't have any roots that go back further than five years, right?
1: Well, extremism in the pursuit of liberty is no vice. Exactly. Seems relevant, although Barry Goldwater was sort of a libertarian on social issues, so he wouldn't have gotten along well with the evangelical. They're
2: actually very different ideologically, Goldwater to Trump, right? Mm -hmm. It's more just the kind of anti-establishment. Yeah, and the ethos that they they Mm -hmm.
1: embrace. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with
0: more of The Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The Gap Between What We Know and What We Don't About Psychedelic Therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
1: And now, back to the show. He thought after he absented himself from this 2016 race that He was done with elective politics. Talk about the decision to run for the Senate in Utah in 2018.
2: He actually gave me among the kind of papers and notes was um, a pros and cons list that he had written while he was deciding whether to run. And, you know, the cons were all the obvious lifestyle considerations, like I'll be away from Ann and I'll be living in Washington and I'll be one of 100 senators. I don't know if I can get that much done. The pros were you know a lot of policy issues that he thought he could make a meaningful difference in but at the top of the list was the most interesting thing it was a line from Yeats the poem the second coming where he said he had written the best lack all conviction and the worst are filled with passionate intensity and he felt that that embodied that that captured the current ethos of the Trump era GOP but he he had this idea that if he could get to the senate he was the former republican presidential nominee you know a bit a major figure in his party he thought that he could get to the senate and steer the senate caucus the republican caucus away from trumpism right his theory was there are still a lot of good people there they're just afraid and they don't know what to do in this moment and they won't speak out against trump but if they have some people of stature who are leading the way they'll follow and what he figured out how'd
1: that work out well (laughs)
2: once he got to the senate, he realized oh this is much harder than i realized to turn around right um in fact one of the things he i I found out about and I, i should say i interviewed him i also interviewed a lot of people around him his staff his advisors his family so some of these stories come from them but one of the stories that i heard was that one thing that drove him crazy was Throughout the first couple of years in the Senate, he would routinely have Republican colleagues kind of sidle up next to him and lean in quietly and say, you know, I'm so glad you're out there saying what you're saying. So glad you're out there, you know, taking on Trump. I wish I could say the same things, but obviously, you know, I can't. Right. The thing that would drive him especially crazy, they would look at him kind of expectantly waiting for him to, like, be grateful that they agree with him and He couldn't stand it because his whole project had been, I'm going to save the party from Trumpism. And what he found was everybody here is too scared to do anything. Right. Well,
1: and isn't that partly because the base of the party isn't looking to be saved?
2: That's exactly what I mean.
1: Doesn't Mitt Romney in some ways represent the the very things that the populist base of the party, populist isolationist. (laughs)
2: that party does not embrace he is he is he is almost a perfect kind of symbol of the kind of establishment politics that the maga movement is organized against and so it makes sense that they that, that, that that he wasn't creating some new consensus in the party so
1: the thing that i find interesting is
2: at the end of your book and
1: I want to come back to the colleagues for a second and their reaction to this. But he told you, I've come to recognize that the overwhelming consideration in how people vote, meaning senators, is whether it will help or hurt their reelection prospects. Amazing that a democracy can function like this. This doesn't seem all that surprising. Mm-hmm. In fact, as someone who's been in politics and around politics all his life, the fact that he has come to that conclusion late in fact some of the compromises that he himself made sure i mean it's really paradoxical that this should all come to him now
2: well it's i mean it it perhaps speaks to why he was not successful as a presidential candidate but i think there's something else though going on you know the context for that quote is that he had been in this republican caucus meeting after the uvalde shooting Right. And after that shooting, a bipartisan group of senators had gotten together and put together the first bipartisan bill to address gun violence in decades. Right. And it was presented to the Republican caucus. And in that caucus meeting, every single comment that was made by Republican senators was about the politics of it. And this is a tough year. It's a, an election year. I don't want to have to take a bad vote. This is a lose-lose for my campaign. None of the comments were about whether the substance of the bill, whether it would help save lives, whether it would curtail gun violence. Mm-hmm. And for Mitt Romney, I think it's not, you know, it's not just that they're concerned about re-election because all all politicians are, right? It's that the concern for re-election would so fully eclipse any consideration about legislating in a way that might help their constituents, right? And I think that's th- that's the part that has made him so kind of disillusioned with his party and with the Senate as an institution. He really believes in the ideals of the Senate as this great deliberative body. But what he's
1: and, found- and we should say. He he has been part when there has been progress in the last few years, bipartisan progress. He's almost invariably in the middle of that. No question he, on the infrastructure bill yeah. and the chips bill and this gun bill. Mm-hmm.
2: He, he he. In fact, the the couple years, the first couple years of the Biden presidency were really Mitt Romney's favorite time as a senator, and I would I almost wonder if it is favorite time in politics because he found this bipartisan gang of senators that. Were actually interested in legislating and he actually enjoys that part of of being a senator and so he is in the mix but he just it's always has found weird, that-
1: it's always weird to me by the way we always say the gang of four the gang of this always refers to these bipartisan groups and it's like they're doing something constructive and working together why do we call them gangs yeah. <laughs> i've never i never understood that so here's my question about the colleagues He handed you all of this material. He did 30-plus interviews with you, I guess clandestinely, Mm -hmm. but he names in many cases. So Mitch McConnell gets quite a bit of attention, Mm -hmm. and Romney obviously earned his place in history in many different ways, but being the only Republican to vote for impeachment in the first instance and then voting for impeachment again were both courageous and difficult things Mm -hmm. To do, but he uh, he was talking about the first impeachment in your book. You write as they discuss the prospect of an impeachment trial. McConnell was frank in his assessment of the president's behavior with Zelensky. The facts are pretty clear about what Trump did. I think the only defense that you'll see at the end is that the election is coming so soon that we should let the people decide. And then this is you're lucky. He continued. This is McConnell. You can say the things we all think. You're in a position to say things about him that we all agree, but we can't say. Mm. I mean, I think I can absolutely hear McConnell saying that, probably not necessarily offering it for the record. Right. But now it's in the record. Right. So how much has this ruptured whatever relationships Romney has in the Senate?
2: So it's a good question and it would have to be He's not running again. We you know, should point so that out. So part of this is Mitt Romney's not running again. I don't know if he had made up his mind when he began working on this with me, but certainly by the end of it he had decided that he, he was not going to seek re-election. I think he's probably more isolated now in his in his caucus than ever, but he, he had already been so vocal in calling out Trump that he really was kind of becoming a pariah anyway. Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance, who are some of the senators who come in for the mo- the harshest criticism uh, in this book from him, they you know they they don't they're not friends with Mitt Romney already, right? Mitch McConnell he actually has a more conflicted relationship with because he admires the way McConnell runs his caucus and he thinks that he's actually pretty good at his job in some ways and agrees with him on a lot of things. I mean, that that should be said, he still considers himself a conservative. He, you know, he's not, you know, this, you know, born again progressive or anything. It's just that he feels the Republican Party on issues beyond the traditional policy disputes over marginal tax rates and things like that has become so undemocratic that he's having a hard time identifying with it anymore. His relationships are probably worse now than they were even before the book came out. But he's not really thinking that much about his relationships anymore. And that's that's kind of why I think the book worked and why he was such an interesting subject. He's reached this point after a political career of trying to become president and, uh, you know, striving, uh, you know, ambitiously for that top job. He is now at a point in his career where he's thinking about his legacy and he's thinking about his grandkids and great grandkids and and what his obituary will say about him. And I think that if nothing else, that theme I found in the book is the one that I found most kind of compelling and dramatic because he wishes that he could find a way to take the younger kind of up and coming members of his party and sit them down and explain when you get to my age, you're not going to care that much about what Fox News said about you on Thursday night. You're going to care about how your re- how your record is remembered, how your contribution is remembered, and you, you're going to wish that you had followed your conscience and stuck to your principles more than caring about the current news cycle and election cycle.
1: And did you guys talk about why the Republican Party has changed? I mean, you, you talk about sort of his clarity on his own values and on the meaning of public service and as we wind up. The arc of the book is is George Romney Mm -hmm. and being an incautious politician because he was true to his principles. Mitt Romney as a young man taking the lesson not to be incautious and at the end of his career is really in many ways channeling his father, Mm -hmm. doing the things that his father would have done. But do you think he has clarity on how this populist, why this populist movement grew this sort of nihilistic and what people were reacting to that drove them there?
2: So that is the part that I think he probably is still trying to figure out. I think he has all kinds of theories about what has sparked this current eruption of, you know, what he considers authoritarianism and, you know, nativism and xenophobia and he's he's thought a lot about the roots of it. But there's this other part of the equation, which is, what were the failures of the kind of old guard Republican establishment and maybe just political establishment that created such an appetite for what Trump is offering? And I don't know that I have the answer to that, certainly. And I don't know that he does necessarily either, though he did tell me that when he looks back on his own presidential campaigns, and especially in 2012, he realizes now that one of the fundamental failures was making the campaign about what he called job creators. Yeah, right? I thought
1: that was really interesting. It be- should
2: have been about wages. It should said. have been about wages. It should have been about workers, right? Not the bosses, because most people don't really like their bosses.
1: Well, and you know, <laughs> and, um, you know I, I can say that the reason that the ads that we ran in 2012 and others ran were so impactful in terms of defining him was that they were the story of decisions that were made for efficiency to make companies more profitable at the expense of workers, at the expense Mm -hmm. of communities. And I do think that's been part of the Sort of radicalization of the populist right. I mean, there's there's there are cultural issues and racial issues and demographic changes. There are a lot of elements to it. But um, and look, we were in the White House in 2009 and 10, and our efforts to keep the financial system from no collapsing, the
2: bailout, right, Go was
1: <laughs> uh, was a part of this as well. I think it was necessary, and, and it was you know the consequence of not doing that was catastrophic. But we were aware at the time this is going to be difficult so that's a an area of exploration that I'd love to talk to him about.
2: Well, he still, I mean, he remains kind of unapologetically anti-populist is the reality. And I think that some of that is rooted in his dad's experience, right? But it's not just right-wing populism. He's very suspicious of left-wing yeah, populism, understood. too. And mm-hmm. so I think he probably realizes he's sort of a man out of step with this current political moment and kind of doesn't care, right? <laughs> hes He just believes he's right well, and, the one, and it's the okay. one story,
1: you know? the through line of this is a guy who... Came to the conclusion that he was going to be true to wh- who he was mm-hmm. and is comfortable with that in a way that he wasn't comfortable yes. before. What happens now? Do you expect any sort of. Mitt Romney's 76 years old. What role He's is a he? He's
2: spring chicken. Well, I mean, the guy never politics. ages. That's a, like a weird thing. Um, I would like I to the, attribute it to like good, clean Mormon living, but I follow all the same things as. And I look like this. So. Yes. I can't, I know, you know, I, know, I can't. You're, take you're, you're,
1: you're proof positive that that's not that's it. That's not it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but the, the, he's 76, and obviously at the twilight of his public career, I have no doubt. And he, according to your book, considered is there a third party option mm-hmm. that, you know, yeah,
2: yeah. He
1: Even though he admires, Biden, and they have a good relationship. He worries about his age. He's very clear about what he feels about Trump. He's thought about this third-party thing. He kind of dismissed it.
2: Well, he, he's can, he's he been convinced by some of his advisors that any kind of third-party presidential candidate will inadvertently end up helping Trump.
1: I kind of agree with that. Mm-hmm. But I imagine he'll be romanced to the end by, for example, this no-labels yeah, party. Sure. Do you expect he'll resist?
2: I think if he could be convinced that running won't help Trump even if he knows that he won't be able to win or that it's very unlikely i think he would do it in a second i mean he fantasizes about being on that debate stage he, you know he has he has this idea for a little while earlier this year that i i write about in the book that he almost wanted to run this like cathartic primal scream of a presidential campaign where he just said everything. that I think, we, I think, we, that he I think we've got one of those going yeah. already. <laughs> well, this might be a little different, but he would love, I think the opportunity to run for president and actually just say everything that's on his mind. Cause that's not what his campaigns were like, but, you know, if he could be convinced by someone that doing that wouldn't help Trump, that's his ultimate, the most important thing is Trump can't get another term. But if he could, if he could be convinced, I think he would do it in a second. I just don't think he'll be convinced. Of
1: that. Well, in terms of saying everything he wants to say, he says quite a bit in this book, Romney, a reckoning, McKay Coppins, thanks for coming back to the IOP. Come back often. Great to see you and great to have this conversation.
2: Hey, thanks a lot, David. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.